0: Amsterdam is a laboratory for progressive living, from legalized prostitution to coffee shops selling marijuana. I'm Rick Steves, and today we're getting an insider's look at the culture of tolerance the Dutch are so famous for, from its roots welcoming sailors during Holland's 17th-century golden age to the pragmatic way it addresses social problems today. I've invited a Dutch tour guide friend to give us a peek into his easygoing culture and the challenges it faces today. And despite its reputation as an adult-oriented hedonistic playground... We'll also learn why Amsterdam is a great destination for the entire family, with cozy canals, welcoming parks, and some of Europe's best museums. Later in the hour, we'll meet author John de Graff, who explores what he calls American affluenza and why, despite all the stuff we own, we never seem to have enough time. He has some suggestions for reclaiming our leisure time and explains why America could really use a longer vacation. From Dutch tolerance to the overworked American, join us for a stimulating hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Many American visitors to the Netherlands are inspired by the pragmatic and surprisingly effective approach the Dutch take as they tackle problems any society has to deal with. Coming up today, we'll explore the Dutch tradition of tolerance and its limits. Then we deal with the problem closer to home. We overworked Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. It's all next on today's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today I want to explore the Netherlands in a social kind of way, in, a, in a how a society lives together and manages together. The Netherlands, I believe, is the most densely populated part of Europe. It's sort of a beacon of freedom for a lot of people. Of course, it's got some problems, but we all have problems, and the Dutch think out of the box in pragmatic ways to deal with these problems, and I think they're pretty proud about the way they've found some clever solutions. I've uh, invited into our studio today Tan van Ganderen to join us and give us an insight into the Dutch tolerance and Dutch ways of life. Tan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Now, Tan, your first name's easy, Tan. Yeah. Your, your last name, van Garderen, it's spelled, but how do you say this in Dutch? Harderen. Harderen. Ha, yeah. ha. So yeah. there's a lot of this guttural business in the, yes, in the that's Dutch right. language. Yeah. 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 yeah, And then the other complication is the Dutch people all speak English, so we, we have a tough time learning your language. Yeah, I know,
1: and they want to show off that they can.
0: Hey, let's talk about your culture and how you, uh, you're so famous for tolerance, but you're dealing with some serious
1: problems these days. Yeah, you all know the murder of first Fontaine and later on Van Gogh. And, uh, well, in fact, since 1671, nobody was uh, killed for his uh, belief until four years ago, first Fortuyn and then Van Gogh.
0: So this is a, a politician and a yeah. playwright. Yeah, So people right. who were
1: um, edgy and
0: they offended some of your immigrant communities yeah. or they offended some people politi- and they were actually killed. This is yeah. a new thing. That the that's a new thing,
1: really yeah. And there always have been problems in society between groups. But the Dutch trick to keep it in shape was let everybody have his own life as long as you don't bother the others. So that's a fundamental thing. That's is a fundamental do thing. Do what you want to do as long as you don't bother somebody else. Right. Is that right. realistic? That's uh, Yeah, it did work fine. Uh, Even when the Protestant religion was the only official religion, the Catholics were allowed to have their hidden churches and everybody knew, but this was fine as long as they had no political power. Okay, that was in the 17th century. Uh, Thereafter, thanks to the French Revolution, uh, equality for all the groups in society. And yeah, we have to maintain the dikes. We have to work together to keep the country dry. So you cannot allow conflict to become too Hi. Oh, so if you all fight amongst yourself, the sea will come and
0: wash you all away. Right. So work together, keep the sea out, a common enemy. Yeah, that's right. Do you still have the common enemy today? Is it still functioning, or is this breaking down?
1: Um, yeah, well, we still have the water, but we have institutionalized the management of water, so we don't feel responsible. There is just a nice club, they do the water work, so we don't think about it. I always say we had two things in common in the Netherlands, the Queen and soccer. The Netherlands was famous for soccer, but uh, now soccer is, is out of, of terms, we are not that good anymore. And the queen is not that important. So the things, keeping the people together is getting less, is getting away. And then we have the other problem that uh, originally in society we had the the Catholic, the Protestants and the Socialists. Now now we have a fourth pillar in society, which is the Muslim population. They came in initially with the idea to work a couple of years. That's at least what the Dutch Mm -hmm. government uh, wanted. And then they should go home. Well, they stayed, they got children, and now they are becoming the fourth group. What are the three groups, the first three groups? The Catholic, yeah. Protestant, Socialist. Ah, and now the Islam yeah. community. What yeah. percent of your society is is Muslim? Uh, well, uh, that's about 6%. 6%. Yeah, Is that growing? Yeah, it's growing, and uh, that's the only uh, group who still does get two, three, four kids.
0: So yeah. statistically, they'll be growing faster. Yeah. There must be a concern that the Muslim community is not assimilating. They're, they're yeah. operating in a parallel and separate
1: world within that's, the Netherlands. That's right. And uh, the whole idea of live and let live uh, did work well because the three older groups know how to do it. Now, the Muslim population, they say, I don't want my kids to go to a school with homosexual teachers. So they don't accept the tolerance which is fundamental for our society. So here we have this live-and-let-live live tolerance. I mean,
0: yep. the Netherlands is a classic example of tolerance. You've got Protestants and Catholics, they completely disagree in yep. a lot of ways, but live-and-let-live live yep. in, in the same neighborhood. Right. You've got socialists and people who disagree with them, and yep. you've managed to live-and-let-live. You've yep. got your uh, motorcycle clubs, you got pot smokers, yeah. you got prostitutes. Yeah. All of them living and let living. That's right. And now the you say there's a fundamental change now yeah. with the Islamic community.
1: Yeah, how to solve this problem? Uh, well, first of all, we should know that not every Muslim is a fundamentalist. Right. No, a lot of people just live their life and that's okay, but uh, within this group uh, there are some people who don't understand the Dutch way of living.
0: I want to go back to the idea that you brought up ton about Extra legal. I mean there's legal, there's illegal, and then there's some things that are technically illegal but you let it happen. Yeah. In the old days, when the Protestants took over, Catholicism was not allowed and there's hidden churches. When you go yeah. to Amsterdam, you right. find big Catholic churches that just don't have a, a front. Yeah. But everybody knows they're there, and every
1: Sunday, hundreds of Catholics yeah. would go up this little stairway. It, it was just a political thing. The Protestants in charge didn't want to take over the Catholics. So they found it was probably easier to, okay,
0: it's illegal, but we're not going to enforce that. Yeah. And today, centuries later, you got this marijuana community. Yeah. And marijuana is, um, contrary to popular belief, it,
1: it's not legal in the Netherlands. No. What is the legal story of marijuana? Okay, uh, the funny thing is consumption is legal, but production not. Yeah? So you can buy marijuana in the coffee shop. Five gram per person. So I could sit on the
0: on the front step of the city hall and
1: smoke a joint, yeah, and blow the smoke right at a
0: policeman, and he would say, uh, uh, "Have a good day."
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, yeah. The, so where you smoke it, that's up to you. Where you buy it is uh, limited to the so-called coffee shop. And so these have licenses. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is that they get their stuff through the back door, but it leaves through the front door. So uh, it's it's actually not legal to buy it in a wholesale way. No. So how does that work? I mean, is that just a wink-wink thing? It seems like that's a very um, illogical kind of breakdown. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. And the coffee shop itself is uh, supposed to have enough stuff for 100 clients, but uh, we all know they have much more. So the production and the way it comes to the coffee shop is illegal. And sometimes police comes in and uh, then they say, oh, you have more than what you're supposed to have, and you have to pay a uh, penalty. Legally, how much marijuana can you grow in your house? and uh, only for your own consumption which means 5 plants so it's perfectly legal to grow 5 plants in yeah. your house yeah but at the moment you have 6 you are offending the law it's interesting
0: to think that this has been established now in the netherlands yeah it started '53. Like 73 1953 and what do the people who are anti drug people but pragmatic. What is Mm -hmm. their take on this now that you have a track record? What has been the experience in Amsterdam?
1: Let me first explain why did they decide to uh, legalize soft drugs. The idea was if we do that, then we can focus on the real bad things, the hard drugs. Okay, so in a
0: coffee shop you can be having loner bongs and you can be having people sitting there rolling a joint and playing backgammon, but that does not mean that it's uh, soft on harder drugs?
1: No, no, hard drugs is uh, illegal. You never can buy uh, hard drugs in a legal way. It will be always illegal. And do the people who run the coffee shops support this? Yeah, they do, because they say the audience we get uh, are just people who are in for uh, for a nice time and not uh, really drug addicts. And I looked up the the number of people dying because of drug abuse in uh, Europe and if we relate the number of people dying from drugs to total population, the Netherlands is uh, really far below the average. So you're effectively keeping down the abuse of hard
0: drugs yeah. by using coffee shops to actually be a firewall for drug enforcement yeah. uh, to keep control of this problem because every country is dealing with needle drug problems and, and uh, heroin and, and this kind of hard drug abuse. Yeah. Roger in Orlando, Florida, emailed us, and he said, I've heard that some people are actually arrested for marijuana in Amsterdam uh, only because it would keep the United States happy. Have you heard anything about this? Does the United States have an impact on on your drug
1: laws? Yeah, well, I know the United States uh, a couple of years ago was very strong on uh, ecstasy, and uh, also uh, policemen from the States came to the Netherlands to assist the Dutch in fighting ecstasy. Uh, but ecstasy is something totally different than marijuana. So if you have ecstasy, if you sell it or even if you have it, it's illegal and it might be a reason for uh, arresting.
0: And you know I've I've never felt any doubt about this. In the Netherlands, marijuana is considered like alcohol and uh nicotine yeah. and uh, n- the Netherlands are not light on hard drug abuse. It's a
1: serious problem in the society and the police are on it and people are being and it's being enforced. Yeah yeah the netherlands is is uh, famous or infamous for producing and exporting uh, hard drugs but the use in the country itself is not not too big
0: and after this easy going approach to marijuana since 1973 statistically yeah. has uh, use
1: gone up or down um i, I can't say i think it's uh, i don't have those figures but i think it's it's about the same so um, it's not you don't open a
0: grade of people who are just wasted because no. marijuana is everywhere no Tell me about this distribution problem. Are they making efforts now to, to be more logical about uh, making distribution legal and efficient and, and uh, licensed and that's controlled? That's
1: uh, a common uh, play. We have every four years with new government. Then uh, the brightest one of the class says, uh, why shouldn't we legalize the whole procedure? Then the Ministry of Foreign, Assay, uh, Foreign Affairs says, shut up because... Uh, we have problems with our neighbors. They don't like it. So, that's. Uh, so, really, the Netherlands would like to just be more businesslike about this.
0: Yeah. But your neighbors, your trading partners, the French don't like it to be so yeah. easy. The Germans, yeah. the Americans. Yeah. The Swedes. When you walk around Amsterdam, you see smart shops. Mm-hmm. And these smart shops are, uh, they say they sell 100% natural products that play
1: with the human senses. Mm. That's now, a nice way of saying it. <laughs> now, so well, tell me what a smart shop is. Yeah, well, you can buy uh, biological uh, products. This is mushrooms. Mushrooms, yes, especially mushrooms. That's that's the basic thing. Well, I'm curious, but uh, I must admit that I still didn't try it. Right. But that's something that people sell and it's just um, buyer beware. Well, well, there is still a problem about because it's a relatively new product and uh, we have a list of uh, drugs which are allowed and which are not allowed. But mushrooms is totally new so it's not on the list of neither of these two groups. So it's a kind of gray area in between. So it fell through the cracks. Yes. There's actually a coffee shop called the gray area in Amsterdam Mm -hmm. that might uh, relate to that. Yeah.
0: There's more of our Insider's Guide to Amsterdam and today's Netherlands, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're traveling in the Netherlands exploring the Dutch notion of tolerance, and I've got with me a Dutch friend whose first name is easy to pronounce, Tan, and his last name is a good Dutch name, Van Harderen. Van Harderen. And as uh, tour guides enjoy saying, back in World War II when they wanted to find out if somebody was a spy, mm-hmm. a German spy in yeah. their country in the Netherlands, they'd ask them to pronounce the no. name of the resort town next yeah. to Den Haag. What is that town? The town is Scheveningen. Scheveningen. So if you could say, is this true? A, a German just could not say that with no yeah. accent?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. So even yeah. today, when you hear yeah. somebody pronounce that name, you know if they're Dutch or not. Yeah, and I think if you can pronounce Scheveningen and Zaanse Schans, it's time to apply Life for your Dutch passport. <laughs> Zaanse Schans. That's a beautiful <laughs> little open air folk museum,
0: about a half yeah. an hour bus ride away from Amsterdam, where you can climb up into a windmill and uh, have a, a nice traditional Dutch experience. We're exploring Dutch tolerance, and now, ironically, you're so easy going on marijuana, but tobacco. Most of the package of the tobacco, it says smoking can kill you. Yeah. Uh, then I
1: guess a lot of local people say life can kill you. Yeah, but uh, the people, the smokers, uh, they don't have a strong voice anymore, so they are getting a li- little bit timid. They're getting timid. Yes. All right. So, uh, you can still find a lot of smoke in the little coffee shops and it's tobacco shop smoke. Yeah, that, uh, that's right. Yeah. And in bars, in, in many bars, it's still allowed to smoke. In public buildings, of course not. And even the train station, uh, waiting for the train, there's one pile. And those who want to smoke on the, on the platform have to be within two feet distance of that pile. So this goes with the whole Dutch notion that you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't bother other
0: people. Right. Well, you look back in history. Uh, the Netherlands have always welcomed people who were different. Protestants could come there. The um, pilgrims were leaving, were fleeing yeah. for religious persecution. Yeah, and they the pilgrim fathers, yes. Before
1: they c- sailing over to Plymouth. Yeah. Yeah, they came from Britain, because there they were considered too radical. And uh, in the Netherlands, they were welcome. Leiden and Amsterdam, that were their main seats. You can actually go to a church where the pilgrims
0: worshipped in the Begenhof in yeah, Amsterdam. Right. Uh, Jewish people were welcomed in the Netherlands. Yeah. I think the Netherlands are very pragmatic. These people, they're different, but they're business partners, and mm-hmm. we, can, uh, we, we want to have these friends. Yeah. And, of course, you were a great sailing power. Small country, Henry Hudson, world power. Yeah. You need sailors. Hey, you've got to loosen things up to uh, attract the sailors. Is there something to that?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, the English, the British, makes a lot of funny jokes about us, and it's just because they are jealous that uh, not them, but we were the masters of sea. You, the Dutch, were the, the Dutch, masters of
0: yes. the sea. This whole uh, situation today where you have the most densely populated country in Europe, and I think a lot of my friends in the Netherlands say, well, we're very densely populated, uh, and a consequence of that is we're so organized. Do you find that there's a sort of a negative aspect of being so
1: organized and, and,
0: and tightly uh, packed together?
1: Mm, yeah, um, sometimes fantasy and flexibility is lacking. Yeah? Uh, so it's say this som- again, sometimes? Fantasy. The idea, the creativeness in society is sometimes uh, missing because uh, everything is set to standard rules. And uh, the other thing is that every square inch is planned. There's no, even nature is, is, plant is not original so that's a consequence really of the density of your population that's right yeah
0: Yeah. we have uh, people calling us and our phone number is 877-333-RICK or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com we're talking about Dutch tolerance and we've got Sue on the line in Boulder Colorado hi Sue
2: hi Rick and Tom
0: hi Sue Got any comments or questions for Tom?
2: Oh, I've got some comments (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: maybe a question. Um, I actually had a a horrible experience in Amsterdam this past July. I've been there many times. I've always loved it, and it was such a different experience when I was there. Um, I got off the train and entered, you know, that, that main street there, and there was all kinds of construction. There were temporary walls that had been erected, lots of noise, It was hot, now that I can't complain about, I expected Mm it. I took a walk um, in some of the areas that I've gone to before, and it was the very first time that I have walked in the back streets along the canals of Amsterdam and at times um, felt unsafe. I've always appreciated the diversity and have felt, you know, with all the tolerance for differences that, that I was safe. But there was one point when I turned a corner and started to walk down a block there were men sort of swarming, is the word that comes to Mm -hmm. mind, hanging out um, along the edges of the building, sort of looking at me in a way that I intuitively, my gut just told me, turn around, it's not safe, and I've never, never felt that way before even walking in the red light district um, at night. So that's one of my questions, is I'm curious if there's something that has shifted there.
1: Well, to answer that question, uh, first of all, uh, keep in mind that Amsterdam decided to solve the traffic problem in town by constructing a new subway line. We have subways in 73, but a new one is under construction. So that creates noise and uh, also... The corners. whole area in front of yeah. the train station is a construction zone because they're building yeah. this underground. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you know where, where construction goes on, then there are some dark corners and it might attract uh, pickpockets. But uh, that's just uh, one part of the town. They are not constructing the whole town. So uh, if you see a spot which you don't like, then then try to find a nicer place.
2: Right. You know, the other thing that I experienced, I stayed at the, I guess, Rick, from what I understand from your your book, is the only maybe floating hotel the in Amsterdam. The hotel you were talking about. The hotel, yes. Yeah. Horrible yeah, at the, moment, yes. <laughs> part, so, at the moment, yes. Sorry?
1: At at this moment, yes, because on that whole area, uh, they are planning, or not planning, constructing a new library, new offices, so it's uh, the biggest uh, construction site of Amsterdam at the moment.
2: It, it actually wasn't the construction part of it. It was that um, the people who had checked into the hotel, who were getting drunk as the night went on, and what ended up happening is there were groups of men who had... Um, congregated on the dock in -hmm. front of the hotel over which my room looked and there was no air conditioning so my window was open and the group got bigger and bigger drunker and drunker hollering to the men who were staying above my room next to my room um they didn't know that there was a you know female in the room i don't think but they were hanging out the windows and So from about 12 midnight to
1: 3 a.m. Yeah, that's not a pleasant experience. (laughs) But can we go back to your initial question? Your your question was, is there a shift from nice, easygoing Amsterdam to a kind of hard society? Yes, that's the question. Uh, That's the question. And I don't think so. I think you had just bad luck. Okay. Well, Well, also,
0: Amsterdam is a big city. It's a party capital on a Friday and a Saturday. It's going to be really... um, I think, unenjoyable at midnight on the street if you're not out for a a, a boozy time, you know. And that's uh, a problem. And uh, there is sort of this notion of the disease of Amsterdam that a lot of nearby towns are hoping doesn't come their way. Yeah. As far as just a city that attracts ruffians from other cultures, uh, probably half of the people on the street were not Dutch. Right. And they were coming there because of Amsterdam's reputation. I know all over Europe when it comes to enforcement of drug policies and so on, like in Switzerland, everybody knows, well, drug laws are enforced strictly in the spring, because every year they don't want tourists to think that Switzerland's easy on drugs. Mm -hmm. And then, so the tourists are going over to Amsterdam where they don't worry about it. And then later on, they lighten up and and they're not enforcing these so much. But people don't want to develop a reputation as a, a haven for rowdiness and hedonism on the streets at midnight, Amsterdam, on the other hand, is this pretty um, open society, and, and that is the downside of it. I got to admit, and I, I can sympathize with you, Sue.
2: I think it was just the wrong choice of hotels that yeah. night. So, so bad luck was in there. It sounds like.
0: Well, thanks for yes. uh, your comment, and I'll take that yes. in mind when I update the book. I'll warn people that if you sleep in this big hotel, <laughs> it may be cheap, but it's right there where all the noisy people are, especially on go. the weekend. Okay, <laughs> thanks Sue. Thanks a lot. Happy travels, uh-huh. thanks, Sue. And Linda in Ridgefield, Washington. How are you doing?
2: Good. I'm good. I had some questions about there. Since it sounds like there's a lot of things in Amsterdam that are not real um, family friendly, are there areas of Holland that um, would be more conducive to traveling with your children? And how expensive is it to travel in? The Netherlands.
0: You know, I'll butt in before Tan speaks because I'm a parent and I've been with my wife in the Netherlands and all over Europe, and I am uncomfortable taking my kids past a postcard rack where you've got all sorts of pornography Mm -hmm. basically sold in the form of big postcards. Uh And, I mean, it's just really crude and it's really just sexy. And I think that's a a problem for parents with, with young kids that don't want to see that. You walk by sex shops and you see all sorts of uh, things that vibrate for all sorts of uh, kinky kind of sex that you'd rather your kids didn't know about for a Mm -hmm. long, long time. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to your hotel and you turn on the TV and and you've got people slamming away right there on Channel Mm 4. And uh, you just can't believe this is so easily accessible in the Netherlands. And then I go to my friend's house who are just uh, suburban Dutch people and they've got a government-produced handbook for smart sex or safe sex and it's very graphic and the government pays for this and everybody's got it and then the biggest TV show this week is the Kama Sutra and uh, in in the United States we're going in the other direction so there is that reality in Amsterdam especially that I think you just got to know about and frankly if you don't want to expose your kids to it you can't go to Amsterdam because you're going to see that, they're going to see it, it's like eye candy to kids who have never seen it before, and it can be problematic for a parent. Uh, Ton, any thoughts on that? Uh, No, I I think you're totally right in that, yes. So it's the alternative, And, and the Dutch have dealt with this. I mean, it
1: doesn't erode the character of the Dutch people. That's what's fascinating to me. I I have two kids as well, 12 years old. And, uh, yeah, they they know how it all works, but it doesn't mean that they get dirty minds just because of seeing this. Uh I really believe there's more sexual perversions and wife-beating and accidental
0: children and drug abuse in the United States, statistically, per capita, than there is in the Netherlands. And it's because there's two fundamentally different approaches to these social realities. And it's a tough uh, pill for America to swallow but maybe the narrow and, and restrictive approach is actually counterproductive, and the Dutch are experimenters and pioneers in this more pragmatic yeah. approach to things. I mean, prostitution, I think, is uh, uh, very different there, and when a prostitute gets in trouble and she pulls her emergency cord, a pimp doesn't come running to her aid, a policeman does, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. that's quite a bit different, uh-huh. and, and a prostitute is checked for AIDS, and if they've got AIDS, they're no longer uh, in business. The Hells Angels have a government sponsored clubhouse and it's outside of town, so they're not bothering people downtown. Yeah. There's a lot of very interesting uh, things the Dutch have done which would never float in the United States.
2: Yeah, they, it seems like my, my mother's German and she's like, why would you go there? It's just a thin city. And, you know, that's kind of the reputation. I've, I've heard that it's not clean and that people are stoned on the streets. And so I'm a little bit. Leery of even thinking about traveling there.
0: What is what is the concept of social control, Ton? Because you have this whole everybody together.
1: Oh yeah, uh, sure. The the idea is let live and uh, live your own life and let other people do their life as long as you don't bother each other. But of course you don't want to have a junk in front of your door. So uh, there are junks and we make special houses for them where they can. Uh, junkies you mean yeah junkies yeah yes. there,
0: so there's a needle problem everywhere in the yeah. Netherlands they don't have them on the streets they have them in a clinic yeah there's a funny uh, sort of hypocrisy the united states people are really offended by dutch people that that ride bikes without a helmet mm. and in the netherlands there's no guns you know we have yeah. we lose, we lose 15000 people a year with handguns mm-hmm. and
1: uh, we have to have helmets if i drive down the street on a bike without a helmet i am a bad man yeah but that's because it's a different society here the, the united states is a uh, Car oriented society. And remember, our towns were laid out, and in, in the time there were no cars. So, small streets, if you go by car, then you better go slow. So, the danger of going on bike in the Netherlands is very low compared to the States.
2: Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Good luck. Bye bye.
1: Bye-bye. I'm talking with Tan van Harre- Harder. Harderen.
0: Harderen, excuse me, (laughs) Tan. And we're enjoying an insight into Dutch tolerance. Uh, My friend is from the Netherlands. He works as a tour guide. And uh, you have just such a beautiful and fascinating and challenging country for us Americans to check out. Uh, We have Richard on the line from Simi Valley in California. Hi, Richard. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Do you have a comment or a question for Tan?
3: Well, I'm certainly not going to try and pronounce his last name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this whole conversation has been very, very interesting because it's exactly the information I'm looking for. We're planning to go to Amsterdam on our way to uh, Germany, where our family is located. And I haven't been there in a long, long time. And thought Amsterdam would be a great place to stop and to check out the canal ride. Um, And I was just wondering... um, It just doesn't sound like it's all that neat place to take our 14-year-old granddaughter. If we're very prudent about just coming in for the day and spending the next in-canal ride and then just um, looking good to go back to the trains, is it going to be a a problem for us with our 14-year-old granddaughter?
1: No. First of all, I think uh, 14 years is not really a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So Europeans have such a different approach to this because I've gone through the same thing. Yeah,
3: you know, because I'm looking at... (laughs) We would call ourselves fundamental Christians, which, you know, we're a little more um, less uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) risk-tolerant. Richard,
0: let me me give you a a proposal, because you could stay nearby in Harlem. That's where I would stay. It's a cute town. Uh, Amsterdam, nothing cute about Amsterdam. Amsterdam's rough and tumble and historic, and just, it's a great place. But I prefer keeping my groups and my family in Harlem. You side trip in by half an hour by train hold your daughter's hand it's not scary it's it's okay and you know you can just walk and enjoy the wonders of Amsterdam and and she might be uh, interested in the postcard racks but the worst thing you're going to see is window displays and postcard racks she can be completely oblivious to the marijuana culture and so on you can take her on a canal boat ride you can rent bicycles you could go to the Rijksmuseum uh, you could, Museum. You could walk through the Jordan area and Frank's house. Uh yeah. you it's a beautiful place there and I really think if you if grandma and grandpa would keep keep a, a leash on her, uh you could structure a whole day with wonderful sightseeing and you wouldn't expose her to anything uh, that you wouldn't want her to see um, in more than a fleeting glimpse.
3: Great. That sounds like great information. Yeah,
0: and good luck, and I I think you should do it, really. It would be really a shame to take your granddaughter to Europe and not give her a a look at Anne Frank's house and the Rijksmuseum and a walk through the Jordan area. Rent a bike. You can rent paddle boats. On the, yep. on the canals. That's a lot of fun for a 14-year-old. And take it's hard the, work. It's hard work <laughs> yeah. and take the canal tour. Okay, Richard?
3: Sounds like a plan. Thank you very, very much.
0: You bet. Bye. Bye. When we think about the um, tolerance and the lifestyle, how does Amsterdam compare with
1: the Netherlands in general in the smaller towns? Yeah, that's an that's excellent question because many people think we have seen Amsterdam now we know the Netherlands. Uh, totally wrong. Uh, in the central part of the country, we have the so-called Bible belt, and uh, people living there, fundamentalist in fact, so fundamentalist wow. is, is something typical of the Dutch society, it's not something new, it always was there, but it was in control. And there's a section of the Netherlands that's completely new, Flevoland, and in yeah. there
0: the residents are older than the trees, I believe, in some cases. Yeah. Uh, tell
1: yeah. me about Flevoland. It all started with Mr. Lely in 1890, he said other countries get more land by making wars. And of course he was thinking about Germany. Uh, we'll do it in a more professional way. We just get out of the water and make land. And the idea at that time, 1890, was that the population of the Netherlands in the year 2000 would be 20 million. Well, at the moment we are 16.3 million. And they thought, if there will be that many people, they all have to eat. So we need more land for agriculture. Hmm. And probably you know that nowadays uh, farmers are paid for not producing. So you've
0: stopped reclaiming land from the sea now. yeah? And and your population uh, is not
1: growing as fast as you anticipated. uh, That's
0: right. And Flavoland is this big, giant golf course it looks like. And it's flat and it's green and it's decorated with windmills. And yeah. there's actually these are modern windmills so yeah, windmills yeah. are not a thing of the past there's only a f- handful of the old windmills working but you find forests of windmills yeah. Tan from the Netherlands thank you very much for sharing a little bit about your exciting and
1: challenging culture the Netherlands yeah, well, It was nice to get you a few of the Netherlands it was uh, my pleasure Dank u wel Alstublieft.
0: Coming up, we'll take a closer look at our own society and diagnose America's obsession with a workaholic lifestyle. Social critic John DeGraff joins us to explain how we can reclaim some of our precious time. John's book, Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic, offers some illuminating suggestions on how we can slow down, catch our breath, and rediscover the joy of being human. Thanks for coming along today on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Elisabeth Van Hest, and I was born in the Netherlands. And I'm going to teach you a tongue twister, what we use in the Netherlands. So, Lotje leerde lische lopen langs de lange Lindenlaan. That means Lotje, a girl, taught lische, another girl, to walk along the lane of linden trees. A long lane of linden trees. So that makes Lotje leerde lische lopen langs de lange Lindenlaan. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today I want to talk about something very fundamental to travel, and that's vacations. And I'm joined by John DeGraff, and John's an independent producer for public television, uh, quite well-known for his special called Affluenza, an analysis of how affluence can actually be kind of a flu when it comes to our quality of life. We can actually have too much affluence. John is sort of following that up now by being the national coordinator for a movement called Take Back Your Time. This guy is quite a subversive. He wants us to work less and, and, and live better. John DeGraff, thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> thanks for having me on the show, Rick. Now, you're pushing a movement called Take Back Your Time. What is that in a nutshell? I have been for about four or five years now. It's, uh, officially, it's a, an, a U.S.-Canadian initiative to challenge the epidemic of overwork and time poverty that uh, really threatens, in our view, our health, families, communities, and the environment. You're saying that we work we work too much in the United States and it's not good for us. I am saying that we we do work too much and it's not good for us in many ways. It does it does give us the grossest domestic product in the world. Uh, you you yes, say grossest, uh, yeah, in that sense. Well, we yes, have a very <laughs> gross domestic product. I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> but that in, way. in order to get that, we have to sacrifice. I think many other values that we hold dear, predominantly things like health and family life, and and overwork really does cause stresses on so many other elements of life. Well, let's talk about that. How does overwork hurt my health? Well, one of the things we find is that Americans are just a whole lot less healthy than people who work less, particularly the uh, the Europeans. We Americans spend nearly twice as much on health care per year as any other industrial country, and yet we have the worst outcomes. By comparison, for instance, even to the Brits, Americans are twice as likely to suffer chronic illnesses. We die younger. Even rich Americans are no healthier than than poor Brits. And part of what the studies show is that a lot of this has to do with the stress we have from from not having time for taking care of our health, for exercising, for socializing, and, and we know that socializing with friends and family has a huge positive impact on health. So you're saying that working long hours like we do, we take a hit in just our social well-being. We take a hit in our social well-being and our health. And studies we all... show
0: we have less friends than that's
4: right. Uh, we are now the loneliest people really on the planet. Uh, some studies show that the average American now has only two close friends outside their immediate family, and that 25% of Americans claim to have no friends at all. But we have more money. We do. So? I won't deny that. We have more money. We do. It's the economy, stupid. It's the stupid economy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we ask the question, what's the economy for, anyway? If you answer that question that the economy is just to have the grossest domestic product or the highest Dow Jones or the highest number of millionaires or billionaires, then, uh, in fact, we win as Americans. But if the economy is about what we say the greatest good for the greatest number over the long run, that is a high quality of life, that's with fairness so that it's spread out uh, to everybody and that's sustainable in terms of both the environment and, and our fiscal health over the long run, then we're not doing very well at all.
0: Okay, but what you're saying is considered uh, quite subversive, I would think, to captains of industry and corporate uh, directors and boards and so on.
4: I plead guilty. What do you mean? I mean, I think I, I want to change the okay. So this change is subversive. The, change the culture in that regard, but I think subversive can be a very positive thing when it comes to turning around something that isn't in our our best interests as a people. And I think when we we compare ourselves and you, I think have a chance to see a lot of this in your travels to Europe and to other places. When we really compare ourselves to quality of life in in other places, and we look at the numbers, and the UN does mm-hmm. exquisite statistics on all of this stuff, if we compare almost any quality of life statistic from health to uh, to family life to um, crime, uh, and we look at how the United States has done over the past 30 years or so, we see that we've declined relative to other industrial countries in virtually every area of quality of life. And I would maintain that a big part of that is because we have been aiming for using all of our gains in productivity—to have more stuff, to produce more—we're uh, obsessed with with producing and consuming at the expense of these other quality of life values. So our productivity is up. Well, our annual productivity is up. We, we, we have to, uh, but we could take more stuff, or we could take more free time. Yeah,
0: and we choose more stuff. When
4: we turn, when we look at productivity per hour, there are several European countries that actually produce more per hour than we do. Uh, actually, the highest of all being the French, surprisingly. But when it comes to productivity for the whole year, then we, we Americans lead the pack because we simply work so much. On average, we work about nine weeks more than the average European does, some 350 hours uh, per per year more than Now that, the average That European relates
0: does. to your, you had a, a day, uh, what, October yeah. 24th is Take, Take Back Your Time Take Day. Take Back
4: Your Time Day is October 24th. It falls nine weeks before the end of the year, and it represents the nine full weeks more that Americans work in annual working hours compared to the average european we work nine weeks more a year than the average european in total hours and that that uh, what makes that up is much longer vacations in europe it includes more holidays It includes shorter work weeks Look, for instance, at key economic indicators, for example, balance of trade. The United States is just doing much more poorly. Most of the European countries have positive trade balances. We don't. Uh, If you look at output per worker hour, many of these European countries are doing better than we are. Okay, so if you take the gross national product and you
0: divide it by people, we would be producing more.
4: But if you divide it by hours worked. Yeah. Then what? Then we would not be be producing more. But the question is, what do you want to do with these increases in productivity? Well, that gets back to who owns the motors in our society, the the media, the
0: stock market, all of the, the, the pressures are to work more and produce more because people Uh, who own that then make more.
4: Yeah, and we are told that the good life is the good's life, that we've got to have all these things, that every time we gain anything in productivity that we ought to put that right back into producing more stuff, buying more stuff. But the fact is... That's a charade. That's not working for Mm. us. And the result is we're seeing poor health, poor mental health, family breakdown, all kinds of things. I would think this is kind of a tough sell in America. I'm talking with John DeGraff. He is
0: uh, spearheading, really, national coordinator of a movement called Take Back Your Time.
4: John, if somebody wants to learn more about this, uh, is there a website or something they can go to? Well, we have a website for the Take Back Your Time campaign. It's www.timeday.org. Timeday.org. Right. Okay, great. Now, you're producing uh, television shows
0: and, and, and related sort of specials about these kind of issues. Do you get corporations that'll actually pay for to give you a voice to do this or or that must be a tough thing to to get corporate underwriting for something that tells corporations eh, you should give people longer vacations? To some
4: degree it, it is a tough sell. The Take Back Your Time campaign though has had some support from companies like a Behringer Wines for example, a Panera Bread. So uh wine and bread. It sounds yeah, like a picnic. Yeah, wine and bread. Well, is, it sounds like a picnic and I think that that's part of what they're encouraging. We are currently as an organization working on a campaign to try to uh, give Americans at least some minimal paid vacation time. So we what's are, your legal agenda? What do you want to make law? We'd like to, to, to have a law in, in which Americans got at least two two to three weeks of paid vacation and maybe another week or so unpaid if they wanted to take it. We are the only industrial society in the world today that does not guarantee any form of paid vacation leave to its workers. In fact... We're, we're really in the minority even among all countries. 127 countries in the world today now guarantee paid vacation time for their workers, and they average between three and four weeks. In Europe, for example, you can't even join the European Union without guaranteeing four weeks of paid vacation to every worker after one year on the job.
0: So that's a precondition for all these new countries trying to get in. They that's a precondition. They've got to give
4: people weeks four weeks. And vacation. the average now is six weeks. Does it hurt them? No. I, I, would, I would say no because they see the benefits in health. They see the benefits in stronger family life. They see the benefits in creativity and, and productivity when they are working. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with John DeGraff. He is the National
0: Coordinator for Take Back Your Time why Americans might find it in their interest to demand, as workers, more vacation time. John, how does the American vacation time compare to the rest of the industrialized developed world?
4: Well, on average, we get about two weeks. Now, officially, the average American gets 14 days of paid vacation, but we actually give back about four of those days. That's a a Harris poll finds that the average American is giving back four paid vacation days that they have coming Why? each year. I mean they just don't take their... They just don't take it and it's a it's a 75 billion dollar gift back from the workers back to, to I- industry in fact. Why would a worker not like look towards the end of the year and make sure he takes his... his uh, well they vacations? don't take it because many in many cases people are afraid that they'll be seen as slackers and be the next one to go when the downsizing comes other people say, I, I simply can't keep up. My company doesn't do any kind of cross-training or any of the kind of things that are taken for granted in Europe, and I just can't keep up. When I come back, there'll be 800 emails in my mailbox, and I just I can't do it. And increasingly, people are taking their work with them on vacation. Mm-hmm. But even more importantly, 25% of the American workforce actually gets no paid vacation, and 37% of women earning under $40,000 a year get no paid vacation. A recent study by the conference board, which represents big corporations, the think tank, they looked at vacations last year and found that 40% of the American workforce did not even take off one-week block. So you're even saying vacation, paid vacation, as a concept, is is diminishing. It's diminishing. We are getting we're getting less of it, and particularly the idea of taking week or two week long blocks, those family vacations and things that I certainly remember as a kid, and that are important for our families for bonding. Uh, families today taking about one third fewer vacations than they were in 1970 as families, for example. So You're
0: saying a block of time is more blo- important a than block a day here A block of time,
4: time is ex- essential for health. Doctors say that you know got to have a week or so at least before it starts having a positive impact on your heart. You can't just have this mini vacation here and the mini vacation here. You you need, it takes time in our society even just to de-stress a little bit, just to kind of get out. It sounds like it's a pragmatic, practical thing to do, even
0: if you're an employer, to see the value of giving people a little time for
4: recreation. And many companies, to their credit, see it that way and understand that. Companies like Price Waterhouse Cooper are really insisting, for example, that their employees not only get the leave, but they take the leave. They know it makes a difference. Uh, Joe Robinson, who wrote the book Work to Live, which I certainly recommend, has done a lot of, looks at a lot of companies and has shown that actually in those companies that do give uh, a sizable amount of vacation and do to make sure their employees take it, that it's not unprofitable, that they're actually earning earning well, that uh, they find they're doing better as companies. But for the most part, American business remains intransigent about this, and if you look at the results, we are getting less vacation time.
0: Now, it seems to me you could make the case that vacation is never really paid. It's just that the salary is lowered and spread out over the year. So what's the case for forcing workers to take a vacation and not just paying them more per week and letting them take time off without pay?
4: Well if people really let people take time off without pay they, the argument might make some sense but very few companies are doing that and very few people really have that choice. Yes you're You're right in saying that ultimately uh you know what you're doing is you're just lowering the pay and spreading it out over the years, so you you know you're not getting necessarily more but but the point is that we need to think as a country about turning this culture around a little bit and understanding that it it's it's worth it to us, to our health to our families, to have this time, even if it means a little bit less in the paycheck that this is essential and that we have to encourage this as a as a culture not because People are not question, really given these choices. Like you said, what's the economy for after yeah. all? And this would be a minimum. We think a minimum standard is needed that then people can be, also begin to know that they're going to get it, that it's going to be there, uh, that they can have it. Uh, not always have the encouragement not to take it because after all, I just maxed out the credit card so I should work overtime and do this. I mean, These are, these are the kind of things and, and they're why we really need a law in this country.
0: Now, the trend these days is not greater vacation, but downsizing, so you have fewer employees
4: doing more of the job, isn't that the case? Right, and that makes it harder for people to take vacations and enjoy the vacations, and we're just seeing the results in so many ways uh particularly f- with kids we have an epidemic uh that's been now called nature deficit disorder among children mm. that children are today are spending 50% less unstructured time outdoors than they were a generation ago and certainly in the natural world and just not getting out families just don't have that time to go out and go on a camping trip and take their kids and yet that is so essential and we find later on children remember that as some of the most important things in their lives and in their bonding with their families.
0: We're talking with John DeGraff and John is an independent producer for public television. John has produced Affluenza and other shows that talk about values in a wildly uh, material and fast-paced world. Lately, his his, uh, big work has been he's the national coordinator of a movement called Take Back Your Time. John, let's talk a little bit about the European approach to this. France recently uh, tried something where they actually Legislated what a 35-hour thirty-five hour work week, mm-hmm. in hopes that uh, there would be more employment and that people would work better and produce more with a, a shorter work week, and that they would enjoy a higher quality of living. How does that work in Europe?
4: Well, in France, it's worked. It's been a mixed bag. Uh, initially, it worked fairly well in in dropping the French unemployment rate by about three points. Since that time, it's crept back a little because, interestingly enough, they find that people working these fewer hours are so much more productive that it doesn't, it doesn't create uh, that many more jobs. So the French are the most productive nation on, in the world per hour. But there are problems with a one-size-fits-all model like the 35-hour work is that, week. Is that right, though? I, I mean, the
0: image in America is it's easy to ridicule the European work ethic. They're going to take a cigarette break. They're going to have a long siesta. They're going to have their glass of wine. But they actually statistically produce as much as we do per hour.
4: Yeah. Statistically, if you take the EU as a whole, it's just under us. It's about 95%. But you have to remember that 30 years ago, Europeans were only producing about 60% as much per hour as we do. They have really narrowed the gap. They've come very close to equaling our production per hour. But they have not equaled our consumption. They have chosen to take these gains in productivity to have more time for their families, for their friends, uh, for life. So Europeans know what they're doing
0: They've been doing it for a while, and they like their sort of priorities in shaping their quality of life, which involves uh, working less and uh, living better. They do,
4: and they, they like the long dinners, you know, and the, the time out in the cafes and the time with friends. And the point is they not just like it, but we know that it's good for them. For their health and for Just, many uh, other things. Just
0: wrap things up here, John, what can we do to learn more about that? And again, where should we go for information? What should we do?
4: Well, our website is www.timeday.org. People can also look to books like Work to Live, uh, Joe Robinson's book, really terrific look at vacations in America as an endangered species. And at your website, it does say how we can be active
0: if we want to uh, actually become activists for longer vacations.
4: Hey, thank you very much. I've
0: been talking with John DeGraff. He's spearheading a subversive move in the United States called Take Back Your Time. Let's hear it for longer vacations. Thanks, John. Thank you, Ray.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again in our audio archives, and find links to audio and video podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show, or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. Plus, send us your original haiku poems about your travels or write up a short hometown brag. Details are in the 15 Seconds of Fame link in the radio section of our website. The people who help bring you travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatten. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.